This is an ABC podcast. On RN, online, on podcast, wherever you are in the world, welcome to Off Track, the ABC's nature program. In this episode, we continue what we started in the last, talking about Western Australian magpies and magpie behaviour that you could never have guessed. I do remember one of my colleagues telling me when I first told him I was going to start research on magpies, he told me that they would drive me crazy <laughs> um, because they're so complex. Have they sent you a bit crazy? Well, <laughs> I'd say that I love a good challenge and um, the magpies have certainly been that. Associate Professor Amanda Ridley from the University of Western Australia has spent the last eight or nine years now with the Western magpie, a subspecies of the Australian magpie that lives on Noongar country around Perth. Guildford is historically an old logging town, but as Perth has expanded, it's now a suburb of Perth. And in the late 1990s, ornithologists started to ring the magpies at Guildford so that they could be identified. And magpies here live for a long time in the wild, so some of those are still alive today. And over the course of their 20 or 30 year lifespan so far, the researchers have discovered that the magpies here live a very, very different life than those in the east. For a start, they always, always live in a group. And within that group, they cooperatively breed. Yeah, so... Magpies are not a classical cooperative breeder, and this is what surprised me when I first started working on them. Multiple females breed within the group, and then other members of the group help them bring up the young. But we do see some individuals that don't help others at all. Still, especially once the magpies are fledged, it's a community affair bringing them up. Other magpies feed them, talk to them, and are probably communicating in ways we don't even understand yet. Magpie calls and song is so incredibly complex. They're one of the most complex in, in the world, in fact. And some of Mandy's research has indicated that they string together messages with different meanings, telling their compatriots the level the type of threat, the type of action that's necessary. They use something akin to language. So all of this pointed Mandy and a group of her colleagues and students to think that these Western magpies would be a good test subject for the social intelligence hypothesis. I guess the basic idea of it is that when you are in a group and you have other individuals to learn from, you can learn more things than if you're on your own. So you develop greater knowledge and as your group size increases, so does the knowledge of each individual in the group. This kind of idea has been around for a long time and there's been a lot of evidence for it in terms of looking between species. So comparing a for example, a primate species that's highly social with one that's just monogamous, relatively non-social, and showing differences in brain size. We felt that that wasn't the best test of the social intelligence hypothesis, that it would be best to compare it within a species that varies in sociality because those 
species that have been compared against in the primate example, they may live in very different habitats with very different pressures on different cognitive abilities. So we asked in the magpies, if the social intelligence hypothesis is true, we would expect individuals in small groups to do less well on cognitive tests than individuals in large groups because those individuals have had a chance to learn more skills from those around them. So how do you test a magpie's intelligence? The researchers make a little puzzle box. They call it an array to test the magpies. It's a little wooden box. It's got holes in it called wells. And each hole is capped with a swivelling lid of different colours. So if the magpie taps the lid with its beak, the lid swings around like a garbage bin and the interior, the well, is revealed. Clever. And here's Mandy, describing what the day in the life of a magpie cognition tester would be like, which turns out to be surprisingly cheesy. First of all, they have to scrape cheese around both wells before we present the array to the bird so that we know they're not getting any information from a sense of smell about where the food is. They have to learn a food colour association. So in, in the field, the observer is walking with the group until a point where the bird that they want to test is a little bit separate from the group. And then they can place this wooden array down and observe what well they pick if they access the food. Each time the bird does the trial, the array is then removed and reset and given back until the bird passes. So for example, if Light blue is the well that has the food reward and the bird passes that 12 times in a row. We can say it definitely knows that light blue means a food reward. Uh, So a couple of important questions. What sort of cheese did the magpies appear to enjoy? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we really wanted a natural food source and so we tried... um, getting a number of different beetle larvae from local pet stores but they really weren't interested I guess because they're urban magpies they're quite used to the high fat content foods that are put out in people's yards they often fly into people's yards for example and eat the pet food that's left out for people's pets and when I was first introduced to the population by Eleanor she said she always fed them mozzarella and they don't like cheddar (laughs) they only like mozzarella they're very picky magpies and so that's what we have stuck with we give them little bits of grated mozzarella as their reward given that the western magpies you study near perth are always found in cooperative groups Is there a chance that when one bird figures out the puzzle that they'll teach the other birds? Like, how do you know you're testing the cognition of just one and they're not cheating? This required a lot of really patient fieldwork. So we had to wait, for example, they might go and forage behind a big tree and the rest of the group's on the other side of the tree, 10 metres away, and we would set up the trials there for them. But if the rest of the group flew over, we would then have to stop the trials and start them at another time once the rest of the group wasn't observing what was going on. And we were really strict on that because we wanted to be sure that the result we had was the cognitive performance of that individual, 
not what it learned from other group members. But having said that, I think that social learning is really important. And of course, it's part of the social intelligence hypothesis suggests that you gain skills from those around you. And so that's what we wanted to look into in terms of the benefit of living in a social group. And so we did another test. And in this one, they let the other magpies observe as one magpie solved the puzzle to get the mozzarella. Instead of flipping lids this time, they had to open a transparent box with a sliding lid, learning how to manipulate the door and push left or right for cheese. We put those puzzle boxes down and we video recorded what happened. And some individuals had to be what we call the innovators. They had to figure out that to get to the cheese, you had to open a door. And then we looked at who learned from them. And, yeah, we did find that there was significant social transmission and individuals in larger groups learned how to open the door faster because there were more innovators for them to learn from. I feel like that's quite a significant point, right? Because it means that the magpie can learn not just from its own experiences but by observing the experiences of others. That's right, and... It's believed to be a huge benefit of group living, and that's something we see in in humans as well, you know, all throughout our history and the the development from tribes to larger societies, that this social transmission and these kind of specialised roles that we can have today come through social learning, and that happens in other animals as well. It's a really huge benefit of living in a group. And so what we found was a really nice strong effect that individuals in larger groups were passing the test much faster than individuals in smaller groups and it proved the social intelligence hypothesis but we decided to go a step further the problem is that the individuals we tested we don't know what the size of the group was that they have lived in throughout their life so what we did is we decided to test fledglings who basically have a clean template to work on. And so if the social intelligence hypothesis was true, we would expect individuals born into larger groups to develop better cognitive performance over time compared to individuals born in small groups. And that's exactly what we found. We found really convincing evidence of the social intelligence hypothesis and even better, we found that as adults, that translated into better reproductive success. So females with a higher score on the tests, they were more likely to have more babies that survived. So if they had a high cognitive ability when they were young birds, that indicated strongly that they'd be much more successful parents, that they'd end up having more adult children at the end of their life. And we think that's probably related to things like being able to perceive predator threats, information in their environment, being able to navigate the social environment better, you know, being able to coerce help from other group members. So we're running a couple of tests at the moment to really see what that means by doing playbacks to the breeding females to look at their perception of predator threat and see if this is related to their intelligence. Another aspect of Mandy and her students' research is into magpie sounds. 
and there are a lot of sounds to get your head around. So in humans, I think we take for granted that we pass on so much information to each other just through the sounds we give. And in its most basic form, language is really just a combination of different sounds put together to create words. And then those words are structured to create a syntax and that makes us understand each other. In magpies, what we have found is that they're not just giving distinct calls, but they are combining these calls together like we do to make different words and sentences. So you could say the cat sat on the mat, or you could say the mat sat on the cat, and they've got two very different meanings. And you know that those meanings are different because of the way they're structured. And what we think is happening with magpies, for example, is they'll use, for example, an alert recruit combination to mean come here and mob this predator as opposed to a recruit and then an alert, which means something a bit different, which can mean there's come and have a look at this. It might be dangerous. This is so cool. By adding calls together in different ways, they are giving different meanings. The magpies are transforming information of greater and ever greater complexity. We think this is one of the big benefits of having some such a complex communication system. Instead of just saying alarm, one can communicate there is a near threat or a far threat or a rapidly approaching threat versus one that's not approaching rapidly. And one can communicate whether the threat is in the air, the aerial threat like a raptor, or on the ground. And here in Metro Perth, our typical threats on the ground are dogs walking in parks as well. So magpies do recognise different humans as well as different dogs. So they do know their local dogs and tend not to respond to them. But unknown dogs are definitely a terrestrial threat to them. And they have different types of alerts for those urgent terrestrial threats versus less urgent and a different type of an alarm for an aerial threat. This kind of complexity of calls is a pretty recent field of investigation in animal communication systems and it is, in some ways, sort of analogous to the development of human language. But what we're finding in the magpies, and this is still ongoing research that my PhD student Sarah is doing, is they're not just combining two calls, they're combining maybe three or four calls to create even greater complexity of meaning. So what we're doing now is trying to conduct some playback experiments to figure out what that greater meaning is and how complex the information is that they're passing on. Side question though, magpies in the eastern states are able to mimic other sounds. Do you see that happening in the western magpies? Yeah, the western magpie is an accomplished mimic. We have heard them mimicking human words. And we've heard them mimicking things like horses, alarms. And in fact, 
They mimic really like crazy stuff. One of them sounds like R2D2. And uh, I don't know where I've heard that, but it has been culturally transmitted. So there was a female that started doing it in one of our groups. She would make her R2D2 noise every time she ran up to us when we arrived. And then her daughter started doing it. And then two other group members started doing it in the, over the next year. So they are definitely gaining sounds from one another, but why they're doing these mimic sounds, I'm not quite sure. And another interesting outcome of Mandy's research is that females are a little bit more noisy by nature. And that's despite the sort of common ornithology mentality that it's the males who sing the most. And this traditional view that males sing more often than females, uh, I think it's based on a little bit of a previous research bias by working on species where the male advertises to the female using his call. And in, in species that are sexually selected for male song, this makes sense that the males will sing more. They're showing off to the females and the females are choosing a mate based on his song. But in species where that doesn't happen, we shouldn't expect the male to sing more. So it doesn't happen in magpies. They live in the group. They breed with each other. Well, actually, the males go off and breed with females in other groups as well. But he does that fairly silently. He has to go into the neighbouring groups in a way that the resident male doesn't detect him. It does prove that the idea that males always sing more often than females is wrong. Why females sing more often than males in pegpites? We're not sure. I feel like I'm saying we're not sure to a lot of questions, but it is still a, a work in progress. What sort of sounds are those females saying? What is it that they're telling everyone? We call it the low-grade warble. This is like their typical song, but it doesn't have the, the big crescendo at the start or the end. The low-grade warble seems to be the way that group members keep in touch when they're within their territory. How they know where each other is is by giving this warble and waiting for a response, whereas the larger coral, it happens more when they're recruiting each other to a particular area. We have actually broken down all the call types and the frequency that males and females give them in. There are a couple of calls that females give more often, but they're not related to predator alerts. They're more related to low-grade location. Right, so keeping track of where they are and where the other members of the group are. That's right. And it's not just fellow flock members with whom the magpies have relationships. What we were really interested in is that the magpies could recognise us individually. As, as soon as we left our cars, we, because we park in the parking lots in urban parks, and we could see when we leave our cars, 
they're recognizing us and calling to us and sometimes approaching us and that's really different to someone else when they leave their car that the magpie might not know and we thought about this in terms of their communication systems we have seen evidence that magpies recognize each other that of course makes sense but when they're interacting with other animals in their environment and humans it might pay for them to be able to recognize humans that they know are interactive with them versus humans that are not And because we know that vocals are so important to them, we thought maybe the cue is our voice. So what we did in this experiment is when we came to the magpie groups, we would do different playbacks. One would be of an observer's voice who they regularly interact with. And I have a number of PhD students who work with them for you know, several, several weeks, several months, a year. So we would do a playback of those observer voices. My elephant is green. And a playback of a stranger's voice. My elephant is green. So the exact same phrase for the same duration was said by the observer and the stranger at the same volume. So everything was standardized. My elephant is green. My elephant is green. And what we wanted to see is how they would react. My elephant is green. And what we found is that when we played back a familiar observer, the magpie didn't really respond to the playback at all, other than to look up and towards the speaker. Whereas if we played back the stranger's voice, they became more vigilant and the type of vigilant behavior that's typical, more of looking to see if there's a predator, and some of them showed behavior associated with predator threat by flying away a little distance. So they were more alarmed by the playback of a stranger, which told us that they were able to differentiate different people's voices. This is a great example of the ability to adapt to urban life. It should be a benefit to those magpies of being able to recognize individuals and different threat classes, not just of their own species, but others like humans. But the ability to adapt to the new urban environment in the surrounds of Perth doesn't mean that the Western magpie is thriving. In fact, like many of our once common urban birds, the magpies are undergoing a silent decline. You know, they're really ubiquitous with urban life. We see them everywhere and people assume that they're quite common. But by being able to follow individuals throughout their life and look at their reproductive success, what we're seeing is actually quite bad news in terms of really low reproductive success and not enough recruitment for population replacement. They're really, really sensitive to the heat. It was just before the terrible bushfires at the start of 2020. We had a heat wave here and 100% of our nestlings died. As temperatures increase, they're going to experience more and more of these heat waves and we're going to get less and less recruitment. And I think it's a really serious situation because some of these birds have been alive since the late 90s 
And so we're not seeing a lot of adult mortality. And that might give the perception that the magpies are going okay because the adults aren't dying. But what's a more important indicator of population growth is that we're not getting a lot of good recruitment of juveniles. We're establishing a long-term data set asking some really important questions about the silent decline of these really common species like magpies. Amanda Ridley is an associate professor at the University of Western Australia. And in today's show, you heard sounds recorded by her colleagues and students, including Sarah Walsh, Stephanie Main, and Mylene Detour. I'm Ann Jones, magpie admirer and nature nerd for the ABC, and you've been listening to Off Track. Now remember, bring your ears along at the same time next time, because that's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.